Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of attempted suicide, disturbing behaviors, medical malpractice, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Anesthesia is fairly common in modern healthcare, which is astounding when you consider what it is. A controlled loss of awareness. From toothaches to heart surgery, it numbs what's too difficult to feel. And while there isn't a hypodermic needle that can pierce our emotions, the mind has its own ways of numbing out pain. To protect a fragile ego, the mind may go temporarily blind to reality. Unfortunately, unlike an anesthetic, this defense doesn't always wear off. Take Dr. John Kapler. He saw interpersonal conflicts as threats to his authority and questions about his knowledge as attacks on his expertise. To avoid feelings of inferiority and sadness, he rampaged against his colleagues and ignored the truth. The issue was, Kapler couldn't lie to himself forever. At some point, he'd have to confront the pain he'd buried beneath layers of self-importance. But not before he went on an attempted killing spree. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to offer Alistair some medical insight into our final installment of the case of John Kapler, the anesthesiologist with a big black bag of tricks for putting someone to sleep, whether they wanted it or not. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Dr. John Kapler, an LA-based anesthesiologist who attacked multiple patients and assaulted two people with his car in 1990. Last week, we explored Kapler's tragic early life and his attempts to free himself of the constant shame it seemed to bring him. We also covered Kapler's journey to anesthesiology and his series of attempted murders. Today, we'll examine the rage-filled episodes that finally forced Kapler out of the medical profession, culminating in his most notorious crime. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On December 10th, 1975, 46-year-old Dr. John Kapler was released from psychiatric care for the third time in a decade. But this release carried a heavier tone, because his most recent transgression was nothing short of criminal. He'd attempted to kill three of the patients he was supposed to anesthetize. Allegedly, voices in his head instructed Dr. Kapler to do it, though he conveniently left out this information when he emerged from his rampage. According to Keith Russell Abloh, author of The Strange Case of Dr. Kapler, psychiatrist Lloyd Hindman suspected that Kapler had experienced a, quote, acute manic psychosis. It seems St. Joseph's Hospital, where Kapler's incident had occurred, didn't even file a report against him. It was likely a matter of optics. A malpractice suit could result in bad publicity. So they kept tight-lipped, and Kapler resumed his work as a freelance anesthesiologist. No harm, no foul. Except for the three victims who'd survived his attack. For them, the trauma of their near-death experiences would probably last a lifetime. But Dr. Kapler didn't seem to consider this as he went about his life in the months that followed. He didn't disclose his past errors to the other hospitals where he was contracted, nor did he mention his mental health diagnoses. In fact, he and his wife Tommy did nearly everything in their power to hide it. This was no small task. Kapler's psychotic episodes were severe and could arise at any moment. Since she had been trained as a psychiatric nurse, Tommy felt she knew how to spot them. She made sure to evaluate her husband's stability every morning before he went into work. Later in the day, she'd call him to make sure he was still sound of mind. Most of the time, he was. But occasionally, he wasn't. In those instances, Kapler spoke differently. Tommy never specified how exactly, though their son recalled that Kapler's psychotic episodes sometimes turned him whiny and crude. Clued in by her husband's voice, Tommy would order him to call in sick from work. Once sequestered in his bedroom, he'd take either antipsychotic or mood-stabilizing medications for days until Tommy felt he seemed normal again. Then, he'd resume his life without them. Dr. Kapler was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and then acute manic psychosis, which could have been indicative of a bipolar disorder. Whichever he actually had, he would have needed to medicate consistently for the best long-term recovery. Tommy's approach of giving him antipsychotics or mood stabilizers on an as-needed basis was effective at times, but it was a big gamble. She was relying on her own observations, along with her husband's self-reporting, and there's significant and obvious room for error here, Alistair. Given Tommy's psychiatric training, she should have known to be less reckless. 
It seems like Kapler's sustained recovery was secondary to keeping symptoms of his mental illness at bay. This method of coping only made it harder for Kapler to address the very real demons he was battling. And Tommy's help only further enabled his denial. According to family friends, Tommy was protective about her husband. Whenever they expressed concern, she'd insist there was nothing wrong. Perhaps minimizing her husband's mental health condition ensured that Kapler was able to keep supporting the family. After all, they lived in a costly suburb of Southern California. They also had five children to put through college. Even with Tommy working as a psychiatric nurse, they'd likely need Kapler's sizable anesthesiologist income to keep up the lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to. Perhaps that's why 46-year-old Kapler gave up freelancing and applied to a group practice for full-time employment at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital in Los Angeles. He'd have less flexibility to accommodate his mental health, but the trade-off was a more secure income. Unfortunately for the Kaplers, gossip about the malpractice incidents had reached the Hollywood Presbyterian staff. During the interview process, Dr. Leon Robb, the head of anesthesiology, asked Kapler about it directly. This was his chance to tell his side of the story. And tell he did. Kapler blamed the crisis on a lack of sleep and unusual patience. He claimed the woman in labor had been allergic to a drug, so he'd had to give her a different one, something he didn't usually do. He said the second person he tended to smoked four packs a day and didn't respond well when he inserted a tube into her throat. That was hardly his fault. And Kapler claimed the third patient had a weird variety of heart rhythms after he'd put her under, a risk that comes with the territory for all anesthesiologists. Considering that three of this anesthesiologist's patients got code blued within a few hours, I'd probably be skeptical of anything Kapler said if I were interviewing him. Dr. Robb must have had scant information because given what we know about these crimes, Kapler's excuses were weak and poorly contrived. While we all try to paint the best picture of ourselves in job interviews, this was just blatant dishonesty. Still, wanting to believe Kapler was just a good professional who'd stumbled into some bad luck, Dr. Leon Robb hired him. It would prove a troublesome mistake. From the very start of Kapler's employment at Hollywood Presbyterian, there were problems. According to author Keith Russell Abloh, he had a notoriously short temper. One day, Dr. Kapler was so angry, he barged into a patient's room to vent his latest frustration to Dr. Rob. There couldn't have been a worse time. Dr. Rob was in the midst of administering anesthesia. The intrusion was completely unprofessional. But whenever colleagues tried to give him feedback about his behavior, Kapler went on angry diatribes. He didn't care if they held greater authority than he did or had influence at the facility. In fact, that was often the very source of Kapler's rage. Another time, when Dr. Rob confronted Kapler for taking a case that could have gone to a younger anesthesiologist, Kapler grew enraged, then cried. Later that week, 
he wrote Dr. Rob a letter explaining that he wasn't about to let anyone talk down to him. It was a total overreaction to what was only constructive feedback. Kepler readily doled out criticisms, but when it came to receiving them, he completely lost his cool. He'd do anything to protect his fragile ego. He even wrote a department-wide memo painting Dr. Rob as a lazy professional who was making more than he deserved. In Kapler's mind, he was the most intellectual, the most qualified, the most diligent. As he agonized over how unfair it all was, he may have gone to dire lengths to prove who was really in charge. One day, Dr. Rob attempted to wake up a child he had anesthetized. But the kid wasn't responding. He'd gone into cardiac arrest. Panicked, Dr. Rob checked the machine he'd used to administer the initial anesthetic and saw that the shuttle valve was defective. Somehow, when the machine was switched to pure oxygen, it only exuded more anesthetic. And the last person to use that machine? Dr. Kapler. As he raced to save his young patient's life, a terrifying thought might have flashed through Dr. Rob's mind. Surely Kapler wouldn't have tampered with the machine. Or would he? Coming up, Dr. Kapler attempts to slip away yet again. Hi, it's Alastair. And I'm thrilled to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on the popular cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this fascinating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This is an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so be sure to visit parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Now, back to the story. By 1985, 55-year-old Dr. John Kapler had spent nearly a full decade working as an anesthesiologist at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital in Los Angeles. Though he was known for his short temper and fragile ego, Kapler had seemingly gotten away with attempting to murder several patients. Now, his boss, Dr. Leon Robb, had discovered that one of the anesthesia machines may have been tampered with. And the last person to use it was Dr. Kapler. But Dr. Robb didn't have time to investigate Kapler. He had a young surgery patient in cardiac arrest. 
When the child was supposed to inhale oxygen, they'd instead received extra anesthetic. With the kid's heart stopped, Dr. Rob only had about four minutes to act before permanent brain damage and potential death. This reflects the length of time the body can go without oxygen before shutting down, and Dr. Rob would likely have to use a defibrillator's electrical shock in combination with medications like epinephrine or adrenaline to get the heart pumping again. It's hard to say what this child's chances were, but Dr. Rob would definitely need to work quickly. We don't know exactly how, but Dr. Leon Rob was able to revive his patient. The child survived. Though there should have been an investigation, the dysfunctional valve on the machine suspiciously went missing. Since the patient survived, it could have been written off as a scare, a product malfunction. If Kapler had been responsible, he'd never be reprimanded. And this wasn't the only time Kapler may have tinkered with medical equipment. In late April 1985, Ben Whitehaber, a patient with quadriplegia, was receiving care in the hospital after a suicide attempt. Now in the ICU, he breathed only with the assistance of a respirator. On the morning of April 28th, one of Kapler's colleagues called and asked him to check up on Whitehaber. About to enter a 24-hour on-call shift, Kapler agreed. Before he left for work that morning, Tommy examined him as she always did. She noticed that he was a little off, but when she asked how he was feeling, Kapler claimed he was fine. He said the same four more times that day when Tommy called to check on him. Each time, it was a lie. About halfway through Kapler's shift, shortly after 10.45pm, someone turned off Ben Whitehaywa's respirator. Around that same time, a nearby nurse spotted a man that matched Kapler's description skulking out of Whitehaywa's room and down the hall. Confused, she checked on Whitehaywa, only to realize she had an emergency on her hands. Given that Whitehaywa couldn't breathe without a respirator, the urgency of this situation was dire. While we're not sure about the details surrounding a suicide attempt, quadriplegics often require breathing assistance because the muscles below their necks are paralyzed. A respirator machine ultimately takes over the job of these breathing muscles and essentially acts as an external lung that delivers oxygen to the patient. Waitewa's quadriplegia definitely made this predicament more dangerous, and he would have been further hindered because his condition inevitably made ringing for nurse assistance more difficult. When a patient's found unable to breathe, the typical response is to initiate CPR. For example, ambu bags are external handheld breathing devices used to help someone breathe until their mechanical respirator can be fixed or replaced. All I can say is Waitewa was incredibly lucky that the nurse acted on her suspicion. As medical professionals stabilized Waitewa, Kapler actually returned to the room and watched. The higher-ups couldn't ignore the glaring issue. It seemed quite obvious that Kapler had unplugged Waitewa's respirator. In the early hours of the following morning, they called the police. Just before 7am on April 29th, Kapler 
was arrested on the spot. Fifteen days later, the news hit the LA Times. Doctor accused of cutting off patient's life support system. Kapler was barred from working at the hospital as the legal proceedings began. Almost a month later, Kapler stood in court for a preliminary hearing. Kapler's lawyer asserted that the only nurse who had seen a man unplug the machine couldn't be sure that it was Kapler. Anyone could have done it. That argument stood. On June 12, 1985, the judge dismissed the attempted murder charge. There simply wasn't sufficient evidence to prove Kapler guilty. Though relieved, Kapler struggled to accept he'd been so publicly scrutinized in the first place. Even when he'd been privately questioned for his decisions at the hospital, he'd lash out. This latest blow was an even bigger hit to his ego. Any good reputation he'd built in the medical world was now overshadowed by the accusations against him. He was a dog with his tail between his legs, and worse, with his intentions under fire, he'd have to walk on eggshells wherever he next found work. He told the LA Times, If anything happens in a hospital and I don't have an alibi, I'm screwed. As the realization set in, Kapler made the difficult decision to retire from medicine altogether. But there was a silver lining in this, even if Kapler couldn't see it. With the hit to his ego, Kapler stayed unemployed for a while, taking up hobbies instead. He hiked, took care of the house, read books, and went to the movies. It was probably the best thing he could have done for his mental health. And when life grew dull, Tommy made sure they kept up with their social circle. What she may not have realized was that being around the affluent only reminded Kapler of the life he failed to make for himself. And while he and Tommy were on a road trip to Boston in the spring of 1990, that latent resentment reared its ugly head. In early April, the couple stopped somewhere along the East Coast to go boating on a friend's yacht. Afterwards, 60-year-old Kapler remarked, Look at what we don't have. Now sullied by his feelings of inferiority, Kapler's mood shifted as his trip with Tommy continued. They visited two of their children in New York and D.C. Then, finally, on April 11th, they arrived in Boston to visit their daughter Elsie. From the moment he arrived, there was a dejectedness about Kapler. When they ate, he hardly touched his food. He had a strange look in his eyes. The voices were back. As their trip wore on, Kapler began to detect clues from random strangers they encountered. When a man mentioned the town Exeter in passing, Kapler heard Exit Her, which he felt could be a directive to kill his wife. As the weight of the possibility set in, Kapler was terrified. But another part of him resolved that if he was meant to do it, he'd receive further instruction just down the road. It would find him, some way or another. Luckily, the grim reasoning left him, though the rising psychosis didn't. At one point, Kapler grew jealous of Tommy after watching her take directions from a stranger in Boston. 
Kapler felt Tommy had a special relationship with the woman, that she was somehow connected to a network of people Kapler would never be able to access. Kapler's delusions were growing larger than life, but while his psychosis quietly crept in, he said nothing to Tommy. And though she'd continued checking in on her husband's mental state for years, she didn't catch on to its emergence this time. Perhaps that's why she didn't stop him on the morning of Saturday, April 14, 1990, when Kapler excused himself from breakfast to begin his solo road trip back home. As John Kapler headed out into the streets of Boston in his small Hyundai, he didn't have any true sense of direction. But he didn't need it. The voices in his head were giving him specific instructions. Turn here, through here, around another rotary. Kapler had traversed just two miles, however, when a familiar violence rose to the surface. It wasn't just that he had to go somewhere. Something bad had to happen. According to author Keith Russell Ablo, at around 10.35 a.m., Kapler sped through a red light and veered off the road, moving at 35 miles per hour. He zoomed over a curb, veered through trees, and charged down the nearby running path. At this point, a blind rage overtook him. He had to act. Hit and run, the voice instructed. Obedient, Kapler careened full force towards a man who was out for a jog. The man hardly had a chance to see what was behind him when the front of Kapler's Hyundai collided with his body. The force shattered the right side of the windshield, but even then, Kapler didn't stop. His victim was carried hundreds of feet on the hood before Kapler heard his next instruction. Get a second one, the voices told him. So Kapler hit the gas, speeding towards a woman carrying grocery bags of Easter eggs. Her pelvis snapped on impact, and she too was dragged by the car before being flung to the side. Now, both victims lay motionless on the ground, in two separate piles of debris. As pedestrians gathered around the horrific scene, Kapler sped onto a nearby dirt road where he hid his car. He returned to the crime scene on foot. Adrenaline still pulsing through his veins, Kapler found a strange pride as he saw people rushing to help his victims. A little before 1.30pm, he called Tommy, but she didn't answer, so he left a voicemail, sounding a bit confused. Maybe you could pick me up. I'll chat with you later. When Tommy played it back, she grew concerned. Pick him up, she likely wondered. Kapler already had the car. As worry swirled through Tommy's mind, Kapler continued to wander through town until the voices gave their next directive. Jump in front of a car on Interstate 95. As he headed up to the fence at the side of the road, the cars zoomed past, traveling at speeds far greater than he'd been driving when he'd hit his two victims. Shaken by fear, Kapler might have trembled as he waited a moment to follow the order. But before he could comply, the voices let up. 
Kapler was free to abandon their initial command. Instead, he wandered aimlessly, at some point stopping for a donut and milk, before continuing on for hours in his directionless quest. Eventually, the sun set over Boston, and Kapler suddenly seemed to think he'd be involved in an attempt on Barbara Bush's life. She was the first lady. The news would rock the world. Somehow, Kapler dropped that dark line of thought too. And at around 12.15 a.m., he boarded a commuter bus to New York City. Sometime after 6 a.m., he arrived. Kapler bought a room in a seedy hotel, stayed there for about 15 minutes, then left to get a deli sandwich. He found a place with porn flicks and watched several. Then, as New York began to bustle, he walked, staying on foot in the eye of the storm, detached from what was real and what wasn't. But around midday, he started having brief moments of clarity. This is common during emergence from a psychotic episode. Each one has three distinct stages. The prodromal phase, when heightened feelings rise without delusions. The acute phase, where a person loses touch with reality. And recovery, when distinct instances of rational understanding return. This can be a slow process. Even when a patient's in recovery, it can still be difficult to get through to them after they've endured a more acute episode. If you ask me, working with mentally ill patients is the hardest job in medicine for a number of reasons. In my own experience, even their stretches of clarity are most often clouded with irrational thought processes and life-disrupting mood issues. It's also frequently the case that these patients are non-compliant in maintaining a medication regime or that they're just unreceptive to intervention in general. Treating severe mental disorders can be an uphill battle, and believe it or not, it can be just as traumatic and taxing for patients as it is for doctors. I'm sure Kapler felt a lot of fear and angst during his moments of lucidity. He knew he needed help and decided to call his wife. Tommy, he said over a phone call, I think I've killed two people. She urged him to go to the emergency room and his son met him there. Seeing his son, Kapler briefly spoke about performing oral sex. Then he lurched at the young man attempting to strangle him. Apparently, he believed it would somehow spare his son from a worse fate. Kapler was clearly still in a psychotic state. Unsure how to handle him just yet, doctors locked Kapler in the facility's inpatient unit. Soon enough, he'd have to answer for what he'd done. Coming up, Kapler's victims fight for their lives. Now, back to the story. April 14th, 1990, forever altered the lives of three people, one of which was 60-year-old Dr. John Kapler. But we already know what happened to him after he fled the scene of his hit-and-run. The suffering he left in his wake, that was a different story. 
32-year-old victims Paul Mendelssohn and Deborah Brunette Tuttle were complete strangers who now shared one chilling fate. They'd both been struck by the car of a relentless and unhalting Kapler. In the aftermath of the assault, they were rushed to Massachusetts General Hospital. There was no time to waste, particularly for Paul Mendelssohn. His skull had been fractured in the collision and there was a five-inch gash behind his ear. His brain swelled, and shortly after he arrived at the hospital, he began seizing. When the electrical signals in the brain lose their normal pathways, like from a traumatic head injury, they can short-circuit, leading to chaotic and disorganized electrical brain activity. Damage to the electrical wiring system essentially sends the brain into a spasm, and certain arbitrary brain regions are stimulated, which can cause involuntary movements and seizures. Mendelssohn's physical reaction after this cerebral trauma points to the severity of his injury. His chances of survival here weren't great, and even if he lived, he'd be incredibly compromised. When a beeper resounded in Mendelssohn's pocket, Doctors recognized it instantly. This man was a doctor, one of them. Somehow, it made the emergency all the more personal. He couldn't have been older than 35, just barely out of medical school. He had so much life left to live, but his chances of making it only grew slimmer as a dozen or so surgeons tended to him. They manually pumped fluid into his body for hours, They also drilled two holes into his skull to alleviate the increasing pressure on his brain. Ultimately, their efforts made little difference. Hours past midnight on April 15th, Paul Mendelssohn was pronounced dead. Deborah Brunette Tuttle's condition had been stabilized by that point, but her mobility would be permanently impacted by her broken pelvis and other fractures. Dr. John Kapler didn't ask about either of his victims while locked in his room at the Payne Whitney Clinic in New York City. He'd been stationed there for a day now, surrounded by the best of modern psychiatric care, but he'd shown little improvement. When Tommy arrived, he said little. He seemed hostile. Over the course of the next five days, he was treated with lithium, one of the mood stabilizers he'd taken during past episodes. Doctors also gave him lorazepam to treat any anxiety. Meanwhile, the assistant district attorney in charge of the case sent a Massachusetts state trooper to arrest Kapler on April 19th. Though he was in New York, he wouldn't be tried there. Shortly after he was handcuffed, he was flown to Boston. In response, Kapler mumbled to no one in particular, you might as well just shoot me now. His week of medications had forced him to face his hit-and-run from a more rational place. And now, he knew the legal battle ahead of him would be nothing short of a war. The next day, he was examined by a court psychiatrist. He mentioned to her that he'd heard voices on the day of the accident, but didn't explain further. Ultimately, she found him competent. He was cleared for court. His charges... Murder in the second degree, armed assault with intent to murder, and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, which, in this case, was a car. 
it wouldn't be hard for the prosecution to prove that Kapler's intent had been violent. There were no skid marks at the scene of the crime, meaning Kapler never even attempted to break. The entire right side of the windshield was shattered, and half of a blue plastic Easter egg was lodged in the front of the car, no doubt from Deborah Brunette Tuttle's grocery bag. Kapler's best defense would be an insanity plea, though if he wanted his lawyer to pull it off, he'd have to undergo further psychiatric evaluation. On April 23, 1990, just nine days after the incident, Kapler was admitted to Taunton State Hospital. There, he underwent a series of tests that affirmed many of the personality traits Kapler's colleagues had noted in him over the years. Forensic psychologist J. Tyler Carpenter found that Kapler demonstrated, quote, inadequacy and self-dissatisfaction beneath a facade of competence and calm. He also seemed to condone lawless behavior and was unable to adequately measure his own anger. But perhaps most notable about Carpenter's observations were the possible diagnoses he presented for Kapler's mental condition. According to Keith Russell Ablow, they included, quote, atypical bipolar disorder in remission, organic mental disorder in remission, brief reactive psychosis in remission, adjustment disorder, and mixed personality disorder with passive dependent and antisocial features. This is definitely a big list they have going here, Alistair. Diagnosing mental illness can be challenging, and we're still not at all perfect at it. This was obviously more so the case in 1990, and additionally, Kapler was a difficult guy to pinpoint for many reasons. Taking him out of the equation, though, labeling mental disorders may be tricky because so many behaviors and symptoms overlap. Psychiatric diagnoses aren't normally pure, and we now understand that there's a spectrum to all these conditions. When I'm dealing with a patient who has a dual diagnosis with myriad manifestations, I try to narrow down the leading diagnosis that's most in line with their symptom profile. Usually, with enough reliable patient information and familiarity, you can find the predominant root issue that first needs to be addressed. Once this is taken care of, the whole picture becomes clearer. It didn't help that many aspects of Kapler's condition were inconsistently described over the years. For example, during his first hospital stay for psychiatric treatment, Kapler mentioned that he heard voices. During his third hospital stay, he never brought up voices at all. There seemed to be a similar giving and withholding of information during Kapler's latest mental examinations in 1990. When Dr. Carpenter asked him to clarify whether he heard one voice or many, Kapler admitted that maybe he hadn't heard multiple voices during his car rampage as he'd previously said. It was possible that in the car, he merely remembered a prior episode in which he had heard more than one voice. The lack of clarity raised a red flag for Carpenter, who had one more possible diagnosis to add to his list of five. Malingering. This term refers to intentional exaggeration of an illness for personal gain. Carpenter suspected Kapler might be acting crazier than he was to avoid prison. The incentive was certainly there. In his book on Kapler, author Keith Russell Ablow posits 
that this only became clearer when a social worker came to evaluate him. Apparently, Kapler opened the meeting by asking the man if he could perform oral sex on him. This alone wasn't necessarily out of the ordinary for severely affected psychiatric patients. But Kapler insisted the social worker add the outburst to his notes as a testament to his sick state of mind. And even if we set aside Kapler's mental health, there were a few other details that seemed to indicate that he knew exactly what he was doing when he hit his victims. For example, when he hit Paul Mendelssohn, he angled his car so that his victim went through the right side of his windshield rather than the driver's side. He'd also developed a heightened sense of inferiority in the week leading up to the crime with that visit to his rich friend's yacht. While he hadn't selected his victims intentionally, his family witnessed how rage had flipped on like a light switch. These were facts. Only time would tell how they swayed the jury. On December 6, 1990, Dr. John Kapler's trial began at the Cambridge Superior Court in Massachusetts, and the prosecution came in swinging. Prosecution attorney Marcy Jackson concluded that Kapler chose to commit unthinkable acts. Kapler's defense attorney countered that there hadn't been a choice. Kapler's actions were, quote, the product of a diseased mind. Both arguments posed one important question. Did Kapler know what he was doing when he did it? Over the next two weeks, witnesses came to the stand. Each provided a unique lens into the case. Victim Deborah Brunette Tuttle naturally evoked sympathy from jurors as she provided her gut-wrenching account of that fateful morning. She tearfully admitted that in the immediate shock of it all, all she could think of was her three-year-old daughter. Then came Kapler's wife, Tommy. Her presence should have shed some light on her husband's humanity. Instead, it painted both of them as ignorant snobs who should have never become medical professionals. Tommy spoke unemotionally of the patients whose lives Kapler had risked earlier in his career. And Tommy's historic insistence that her husband was fine did little to advance the argument that he was insane. As a trained psychiatric nurse, it seems reasonable to argue that Tommy should have done more to get Kapler treatment if he was truly as unwell as the defense seemed to claim. The testimony provided by Kapler's son provided a far more compelling case for mental illness. He recalled the way his father had attacked him in the hospital room the day after the incident. Surely that was something no sane father would do. Some of the final statements came from various psychiatric experts, casting uncertainty onto both sides. Ultimately, the decision was for the jurors to make. And on December 21st, 1990, after two weeks of testimony and only two hours of deliberation, they delivered their verdict. Guilty on all accounts. Despite there being great apparent challenges in identifying the severity of Kapler's psychosis, there's no nuance when it comes to a jury's verdict. 
This case certainly demonstrates the hazy relationship between someone's psychological state and their legal culpability in terms of criminal behavior. I personally feel the verdict was misguided in regard to the specific charges, as Kapler was clearly disconnected from reality during his crimes. Despite driving that car, he wasn't in the metaphorical driver's seat. Voices in his head compelled him to act, and his illness wouldn't allow the saving voice of sanity to break through. But he was locked away in the end. At 61 years old, Dr. John Kapler was condemned to life in prison at the Massachusetts Correctional Institute at Cedar Junction. His appeal for a new trial three years later in 1993 was rejected. Kapler died in 2002. But the haunting trajectory of his mental afflictions lives on, a tale of the great efforts taken to protect a fragile ego. Kapler's unwillingness to admit his weaknesses, confront his past, and face his own suffering cut him off from any chance he might have had to heal. Had he been willing to sacrifice his ego to accept objective truth, it's possible this episode wouldn't exist, that Paul Mendelssohn would still be alive, a successful doctor in his own right, that Dr. John Kapler's story wouldn't be the tragedy that it is. But he didn't. And while we are all composed of the misfortunes that hurt us, it's how we choose to respond to them that matters. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Dr. John Kapler, among the many sources we used, we found The Strange Case of Dr. Kapler, The Doctor Who Became a Killer by Keith Russell Abloh, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, edited by Abigail Cannon and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, and researched by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, it's Alastair, and I'm thrilled to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on the popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host, and starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this fascinating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This is an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it.
There are limited copies available, so be sure to visit parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.